I don't know what's real. I don't know what's not real. Limited Capacity is a collection of six darkly amusing stories about the mysterious ways we interact with the internet and with each other. There's something going on with him. It's like an act. I don't trust him. What? You're staring at me like I should say something, but I don't really know what to do here. That's the whole name of the game. Don't talk about how the town isn't real. Do you understand? Limited Capacity. Available now on CBC Listen or wherever you get your podcasts. This is a CBC Podcast. This week on Routine Checkup, we sit down with Hubert Van Niekerk, the executive director at Every Canadian Counts. We dive into the importance of a national disability insurance plan. Let's talk about it. All right, guys, uh, we're sitting down with our new friend, Hubert Van Niekerk, and uh, he is the interim heavyweight title holder of the <laughs> UFC. No, no, the interim executive director at Every Canadian Counts, uh, which is an organization committed to improving services for Canadians that have long-term chronic disabilities. Hmm. And uh, I think that this conversation is going to trickle into areas of much interest uh, that, that have been very interest, we've been very interested mm. in as of late specifically. And uh, the reason for that is because, you know, peeling back the curtain here a little bit, um, over here at our studio, Snack Labs here in Halifax, not only do we produce this show, Sick Boy, um, but we also have been getting into the, the business of producing podcasts for other organizations and charities. Um, and we are currently in the pre-production process of um, starting a podcast for uh, CCCE, which is the Canadian, Canadian Center, Center for Caregiving, for Caregiving Excellence. Excellence. I always want to say the uh, Center for Canadian Caregiving Excellence. Um, but I feel like that world, caregiving, sort of lines up quite a bit with the work that Hubert does. And uh, that might be a bit of an assumption because we haven't had the conversation yet. <laughs> but I did a little bit of digging before Hubert came on the show and I went, huh, I wonder how much of this conversation is going to kind of trickle into that thing that we've been thinking about a lot quite recently. Um, so Hubert, I'm going to hand the mic over to you, my friend. Please take a moment, introduce yourself, but also give the three of us and all of our listeners a little bit of insight into the work that every Canadian counts is uh, is trying to to uh, to do. Yeah, so I think when you mentioned um, the caregiving uh, uh, counts uh, strategy, that's our connection actually with Terence Ho. Oh uh, yes, Terence Ho. Because I saw you guys uh, uh, there, and I listened to Terence. I was uh, I, I attended virtually, and uh, was impressed. And then, uh, you know, and what are you thankful for? And uh, so I was impressed with that, and I looked you guys up, and that's when I posted something on your uh, on your uh, Discord, and uh, Brian, I believe, answered that. So I appreciate this opportunity very much. Um, the uh, uh, you know the the whole uh, conference it absolutely ties in uh, with what we are doing. Uh, the caregiving piece ties in so much so that. Uh, you know, it's it's different organizations that have to come together and speak with one voice. And uh, and I think the caregiving uh, strategy, you have the autism strategy, you'll have a fetal alcohol strategy, and mm -hmm. all these strategies will have to come together at some point and say, why don't we do it on a national basis and include mm -hmm. everybody? Mm -hmm. And I think the analogy that you can use is that we can have all the different battles, but there's only one war. And you might win one battle, but you might be outflanked by something else later. So to have one strategy like they have in Australia, I think will uh, will be very beneficial for everybody. So yeah, so yeah, we are every Canadian counts, and um, what we are, like you mentioned, uh, what we are fighting for is a a thing similar to what they have in Australia is a publicly funded national disability insurance program for all people with long term chronic disabilities, and that would be from birth. So if somebody's identified as having a disability at birth, um, they would immediately get the funding 
and um, and they would have it for life. So if somebody has cerebral palsy or you know uh, whatever it is that they might have, they budget that in for life, mm. and it would include paid caregiving from mm. from the outset. Mm -hmm. And this really benefits people that have uh, mostly women, uh, not always, as we know, Terence um, uh, would would traditionally quit their jobs to look after the little one. Mm -hmm. So now what would happen is uh, with paid caregiving, of course, the the person that's doing the caregiving can either be paid to do that or they can hire somebody to come in and do the caregiving. So this mm -hmm. then frees up another person that can go to work, start paying taxes. And it also then has a lot more benefit to the person with the disability because uh, there's there's things put in place also to to retrain or train those for, for, for employment, job shadowing for, for quite a length of time. So it just makes for a healthier healthier society all around. Good mm -hmm. for the economy. It's a win-win for everybody. Um, yeah. Anything? Uh, I, mm -hmm. I got more stuff, but you uh, yeah, well, I'm, re I'm really curious I mean, just to jump in on that but, right but away. But Brian, I just I want to say something because there's something that you you so so again just for context, we went to the CCCE conference, which is what uh, Huber was just talking about there, and and that was a big eye-opening experience for us because we learned a lot about the the state of caregiving in Canada. Um, you know, I think we came into that pretty naive to the whole situation and it really like slammed us. And there was something that you picked up, Brian, on one of the, one of the breakout sessions that you went to, cause we sort of divided, divided and conquered to try to take in as much as we could. And, and I remember you told me about this, Brian, and it, and it really fucking rocked me, um, which ties into what you were just talking about, Hubert, but just for context for the listeners, can you, do you recall what it was that you learned about the, about caregivers and the, the sort of, um, uh, the, the fact that they are not considered a part of the workforce mm -hmm. yet. So the, the, the caregivers are the largest unpaid labor force in the country. Thank and you. because a lot of our policy is tied to whether or not it will improve GDP as an outcome, mm. then oftentimes caregivers are, are left behind. I, I sat in on this amazing session with Armin Yelnesian, and uh, she she spoke quite passionately about this. Um, but like considering the economic, considering this from the economic perspective, listening to you to you talk about that, Hubert, one thing that strikes me is it is like my immediate reaction is like, oh, whoa, that sounds really expensive. Mm. But then you talk about how Australia is doing this. And I'm curious um, in, in the way that you laid that out, that, you know, somebody is born, they're um, identified as having a, a disability for life, they receive um, some type of financial compensation for that. Is that exactly how it works in Australia? Yeah, that's that's the concept, yes. Uh, not the concept, that is how it works. Mm -hmm. And um, so when they started this, uh, the beauty is that we kind of, uh, Australia found a way to pay for it, and that is everybody pays for it. It mm -hmm. comes off your paycheck. It comes off in the, in the uh, so it's an additional, call it an additional tax, it's put into a separate fund held like CPP, EI is put mm -hmm. into a separate uh, uh, separate fund so that it's there when you need it. So you, it's not like you're really asking the government for more money, although I think Australia now, because the costs, uh, they just did a major review, some of the costs have really gone up. But I think initially it paid for itself with wage deductions. Mm -hmm. So it's not like we're trying to get money from the government that they don't have. It's actually adding to the government's coffers into a fund that's uh, separately maintained. It also, so that's it also, the beauty of it. I mean, to, to yeah. that point too, like one of the things that struck me from an economic perspective is that Armin made a really great case for why this should be done in the sense that, like, as you mentioned, if a caregiver is given, um, you know, this fi financial compensation, they'll either pay someone to do the work, which you know creates a job for that person. The money's going into the, the hands of an individual providing a service, or it pays for what is, currently unpaid labor to be paid labor, which then just again adds more money into mm -hmm. the economy. So it's it like yeah. it might seem it's it's funny because like it's sometimes hard to when when it feels like you're giving money to someone to do something, it feels like you can only really imagine like what that direct expense looks like. Mm. But it's oftentimes yeah. harder for people to see what sort of knock on effect that might have in in the economy. I think Taylor, like Taylor, you're probably the best at thinking about the world like this because, like, I'm I, money is is a is a harder topic for me, 
but um, the way that Armin laid it out, it, it made so much yeah. sense uh, to me. And for for context, for people who don't know, Armin Yelnizian is a um, she's considered one of Canada's leading progressive economists. She's she's yeah. done a ton of work in the world mm-hmm. of uh, Canadian uh, economy. Yeah, economics. If, if I if I might. Uh, we have to start looking at it as an investment. And I think out of the conference, they said the same thing. It's not a charity. And, mm. you know, somebody I recently spoke to uh, also on a podcast with IWSCC, which is an organization that puts uh, um, injured uh, military entrepreneurs in touch with uh, businesses. Mm. And what I said t- to her, and she said it was profound, is that disability is not your fault. And you shouldn't have to pay for it. Yeah. You know, it's simple as that. So regardless of kind of where the money from, it's not, if somebody has a disability, hey, you know, it should be up to the rest of the country to pay for it, not that individual or their families. It's, it's not their fault. Um, one of the questions that, that pops up to me, that pops up for me in, in this conversation about economics, um, and this is, a, this, is, this is a little bit out of my wheelhouse, at least, at least the details of it. Um, and, and if it is for you as well, that's, that's totally fine. But when I think about, when I think about funds like um, the Ontario uh, Teachers Pension Fund, which is just like an enormous fund, I believe that they own a significant portion of the Toronto Maple Leafs, possibly um, Rogers, um, whatever, whatever the Air Canada Centre, which is not the Air Canada Centre, whatever that is called now, I can't remember. Um, and the, the, they're like these gigantic funds because they've been they've been paid into and they've been invested, and they're just gigantic. Like, why, why does Canada, does, does the Canadian government not function in a similar way where they can, cre- where they, where they can create these gigantic funds that where, where then it, like you said, it is, it, it is an investment and that investment grows. And so that, that allotment of money that we as Canadians chip into over years through, you know, small amounts of our, of our earned money go into helping people with disabilities I, am I am I sort of like wrong in thinking that the Canadian government is not doing that in a similar way that can that can then kind of flow back down into um, into the pockets of people living with disability and that can you know benefit their lives in in obviously gi- yeah. gigantic ways. Yeah, I guess they could if they weren't in debt. <laughs> so right, right. <laughs> you know they got to get rid of that first. Uh, as a uh, collector of a teacher's pension. <laughs> I do have a little bit of uh, experience there uh, because I get the check every month. Um, I've the last 17 years of my life was teaching. I went to school when I was 48 to become a teacher. So I worked in construction. I'm a con- I'm a I'm a cement mason, carpenter, interprovincial. I could do all my own trades, but at that time it was a time for change. Um, I had done a, a thing at the school uh, for kids at school. I thought I could do this, and then about nine years later or so, I, I finally took the took the leap. But so I've been retired now from teaching for about six years, and my what I was teaching was primarily in a self-contained, isolated type classroom with students with severe disabilities, and that's not just only that, but that's my biggest connection to what I'm doing now. When I retired, I retired even a few years earlier than what I would have because I was so frustrated and totally pissed at the system that mm. wasn't getting students what they deserved and what they should have got. It got to the point uh, what really kind of brew, uh, broke the camel's back is I would make up individual education plans for what I knew the kids were capable of, and then management changed the IEPs to suit them and, and dummied it down so they wouldn't have to provide those types of things. What are IEPs? So it's an individual education plan that um, usually is, is brought in through um, individual, uh, it's an IPRC individual. Uh, uh, it's not always through that, but you identify a student has a, a specific need and that's what then you, you put an individual education plan in place to say, this is where they are, this is where they should be going. And then mm-hmm. they're actually marked with a report card on, on where, how they did with that. Mm-hmm. So, well, yeah. What were what were the things that made you um, frustrated looking at the system? Other than like the fact that they changed those, like what what was it that you saw that that made you feel like it it was not supporting these people in the way that they needed? Well, um, 
a lot of the students were actually in the program when they're in a, the way the school board had it set up here. They've changed it since, and uh, I gave them credit for that. Uh, I even hounded them, you know, after I retired. And then a new superintendent came in, and I, and I believe he changed it so that kids now with developmental disabilities could get credits if they proved they could do it. So I had students that went into classes, integrated into classes, into geography, into art, into uh, horticulture, into construction, that, that the teachers told me, and they actually wrote the tests, they wrote some of the exams, and they could actually do the work. They passed, but they wouldn't give them credits because that's how they had it set up. Mm. Even though they could have done it by changing how this particular board had it set up, mm. uh, the Ministry of Education would have allowed, so instead of four choices where you put students, they only had three choices here. So they could have actually gone in for credits, but they've, they've changed it, I believe, now that, that that students, if they show they can do the work and can earn the credit, that they actually get the credits. That must have like, a, also, a, a, like a really significant knock-on effect in terms of the trajectory trajectory of like where and what those students can do after they finish that class? Uh, you know, it was um, so many of the students, uh, especially the latter students, I worked anywhere from you know, three students in a classroom to 10 students in a classroom in that sort of self-contained setting. The last students I worked with were, um, uh, let's say, more uh, capable of, of actually going to work. So to get the job shadowing that they needed, the job training, that they couldn't, that they should have gotten because they were capable of working, they were capable of getting jobs. The support wasn't there for them to sort of help them get started. So that's that was a big thing. After I retired about three years later, you know, a kid comes up to me, Mr. V, I got my driver's license. Now, does that tell you whether the kid should be able to get credits or not? You know, <laughs> he they, they wouldn't give him credits, you know, but he got his driver's license. He had a he had a good job. So a lot of these kids were capable of of getting good jobs. They were capable of having an apartment, getting married, do what everybody else does. So not everybody was capable of that. But the frustration level for me was just unbelievable. How how they should have got the the, the support. You know, they were they were able to complete the safety uh, training that was required for the jobs. And uh, so some of the, you know, some of the local places that uh, that we took them as as job placements were just fantastic. You know, they uh, were where it was successful, they would take them and look after the uh, certain students and put them to work. And um, but you know, where otherwise on in any other co-op placement, they would have got credit for that. But because mm. they're in a self-contained classroom, developmental disability uh, label. They wouldn't give them credits, so it was very frustrating. So mm -hmm. I just, just kind of, you know, for lack of a better way to put it, it just pissed me off. Mm -hmm. And then yeah. when I, when I, when I got, um, when I retired, um, I, I started looking around, and I'm also involved uh, on the board of directors for Larsh London. You may, I know there's a Larsh in uh, Halifax as well. Um, mm -hmm. uh, in Tiganisha, what's the name of that? Um, anyway, yeah. I've met people yeah. there. Yeah. Uh, I've been to Halifax actually at one of the large conferences when they when it was there. Mm -hmm. Been there a couple of times, but you know, there's just there was just I I just felt that my job wasn't done, and um, I just started to look around for what else I could do. And about four years a, a year ago, I came across every Canadian Council with uh, Bill Cowie, what he was doing, and it was exactly what I was trying to get started on my own. And here he had done all this work already, mm -hmm. so I was able to just to, to jump right in and start uh, advocacy. Um. Yeah. To to go back to the to go back to kind of like this this sort of like you know big hairy audacious goal of getting this um, this funding program in place um, and looking to places like Australia who have who have done something um, and looking to them as sort of like a north star for <clears throat> how we could how we could do that um, you know what are the what are some of the like right from the outset when somebody is born with a disability that they are going to carry with them for their whole lives. What are some of the kind of the biggest knock-on effects that happen right away when, when, when a funding program like that is not in place? Well, when it's not in place, uh, well, first thing, the woman never comes off maternity leave, <laughs> stays mm. and takes care of that, uh, the child. And it becomes, um, so, you know, I would say the, you know, to love your child or to love whoever it is that you're taking care of should be enough. Um, you know, then to say the added burden of all the financial costs 
there was a good example uh, that I read about about, a, about two months ago about how in Australia, a mother uh, gave birth to a, a child with Down syndrome. And right away, there was people from the, the National Disability Insurance Scheme who also had a, a, a son or a daughter with Down syndrome was there on behalf and talked to the mother right away to say, this is these are the steps you'll need to, to get the support you need for your son. So it's, you know, to kind of go back, you mentioned the money too. I'll try to, I know we'll jump around a bit, but, but they did a, um, what did they call it? The, um, the financial assessment, whatever it is. And, and they've uh, just as, even as late as I think it was 2019, where they proved that the, that the uh, whole program was making money, you know, it is adding 2% to the GDP of the country. So financially, it just makes sense. Not, you know, if you not to do it is stupid, you know, um, so two percent to the GDP—that's uh, that's not a small yeah. number. No, it's 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 huge. Uh, there's there's over six hundred thousand people on the program right now. One hundred and seventy-five thousand had never been on the program of any sort before. So they've they've so people now have you know finally because they thought there was no support at all or there was no support. So now they knew there was support. So yeah, all you know it just makes for. Uh, you know, so they've done lots of financial reviews, uh, but the biggest review they've just completed, and I still have to read the review or listen to it, but they come up with all kinds of recommendations. So this is, it was, pilot project started in 2013. Majority of the country was done in 2017, but it was fully implemented in 2020. The cost started to run up. There was, uh, you know, fraud happening. There was uh, small businesses were kind of being pushed out because of big, big companies and shareholders. And so people sometimes say to me, well, you know, why would you want to look at the, the mess that, that they're going through right now? And I said, I wish we had that mess. I mm-hmm. wish we had something to complain about because it's miraculously changed the lives of people, families, their individuals. Um, you know, there was still um, uh, as late as I think it was 2018, there was 93% satisfaction or very satisfied rating of the plan. Yeah, there's still people that they're, that they're not reaching. Uh, there's uh, so they've identified that as one of the problems they they could they can do better. But what a wonderful place for Canada to start is right at the end of where their review ended, mm-hmm. so that we don't make those same mistakes. You know that we don't let the big shareholders in. That we have that history that's going on there, so we can make it far more efficient. the The plan in Australia right now is bigger than their Medicare system. Hmm. This year alone, like they they kind of started, I think, with about ten or or thirteen billion. But this year, their budget is $52 billion. Mm, it's hundreds wow. of thousands of people that are employed. Um, and so many, uh, uh, just so many more that are being served. And a healthy population, you know, is creates money. They, um, uh, it's just better all around if people are healthier. They don't, uh, same with the caregiver conference, you know, pointed out that if people are healthy, they're being supported. They don't cost the system. It's good to, you know, it's, it's better for the system mm. because now people are more productive. Something it's, um, it's, that you mentioned there that really stood out to me was the, 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 that experience of, of a mother gives birth to a child with Down syndrome and immediately there's somebody there that, is, uh, that has, uh, has some of that experience of giving birth to a child with Down syndrome. Like, I think about I think about the immediate aftermath of when my daughter was born and thinking about her being perfectly healthy and all of the question marks that are there of like what do we do how do we do this this is totally new I don't know how to do I don't know I don't know anything, anything. <laughs> I don't know anything and I'm thrust into this new world of taking care of this child and so like far before if that child is born with a disability that they will have to, that, that they will have to deal with sometimes on their own later in life um, uh, in the absence of parental support or anything like that. There is that, there is that huge question mark of like how somebody who, who has a child who is born with a disability, the mountain of the, the, the further mountain of question marks that come with having a child with, who's born with something like Down syndrome to go like, this is already, in the absence of any type of disability, this is already a totally new experience that I have no idea how to navigate. And now, like, now this is adding this layer 
that of complexity that is honestly unfathomable. And just to have somebody there that can give you like a little bit of a, of, a, of a headlight to navigate that is, I can't imagine how, how beneficial that would be. For Are somebody. you sure that you just didn't read enough books? Like baby books before. Right. If I had read that one more baby book, I actually would have been completely ready with and, and totally. I, yeah, I would have just gone. Got it from here, everybody. We're good. I, I wanted. I wanted to say though, uh, too, to that point about the you know someone who maybe it's the mother who's on maternity leave and then never goes back to work. Um, it's really striking to me. You mentioned Larsh and um, my partner and I taught uh, yoga f- to people with intellectual disabilities, and we worked with uh, Larsh quite a bit, and. Um, Larsh was actually the Christmas party that I went to, guys. Oh, nice! Yeah, <laughs> uh, yeah just for con- context, uh, can you can you give us some insight into uh, into Larsh? What what they do? I mean, maybe Hubert, Hubert's this would be probably, one for you, yeah. uh, since you're <laughs> you're on the fucking board of directors. Uh, I would yeah. hope you would know. Um, but yeah, what is yeah. Larsh, and and how does that tie into this? Uh, well, it's it's adults with developmental disabilities, right? That's who they look after. That and the the thing that sets Larsh's uh, structure apart is that. Uh, people who work there are at least, so generally speaking, there's about four what we call core members, people with developmental disabilities. And then there's generally about four people that that work there that also live in the same house. So it's much more of a family atmosphere. The people, the, the core members feel that that's their home. And they don't, and, and there's still, yes, there's part-time staff and there is rotating staff, but there's always that core there. That, that make it more like a home. It's mm-hmm. also um, a faith-based. So that's that's the thing too, that, uh, that is kind of, uh, they do follow uh, uh, trying to be, uh, for maybe a better way to put it, to follow the word of Jesus. And mm-hmm. if we can all do that, regardless of whether you're religious or not, that'd be all right. <laughs> mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So uh, it's faith-based. So that sets it apart. And it's, it's a bit of a live-in model. Mm-hmm. And uh, and cool. they are all over the world. Uh, you know, they're also in Australia. Uh, they're um, very, you know, uh, there's uh, 139 different countries they're in right now. Wow. Are vegans actually unhealthy? Does cannabis ruin your sleep? And why are so many men taking testosterone supplements? I'm Mitch. And I'm Greg. And we're the creators of the popular YouTube channel, ASAP Science. Every week on our podcast, Side Note by ASAP Science, we explain the science behind a controversial subject with recent research, up-to-date studies, and ridiculous stories so you are entertained while, bam, simultaneously learning. We're here to make science make sense. Download Side Note by ASAP Science wherever you get your podcasts. So, so like to the point about, um, you know, Larsh being a, a, uh, homes where, where people live. Um, I think of that trajectory of like the mother who, who, uh, goes on maternity leave, maybe doesn't go back to work. And then the financial implications of that, that sort of knock on effect into the future. And, and I know that when we were working with, uh, organizations with folks with developmental disabilities, the biggest sort of. Um, scariest milestone for those parents were when their kids would finish school yeah. and, and, and sort of not knowing what was going to happen beyond that. Mm. Um, and then, you know, following that would be when they're no longer there. So when the parents um, uh, oh. die, then, then the result of like what happens to their child afterwards. Yeah. And I think of like, you know, financially, if, if we could support people financially and, you know, um, that that mother or father doesn't have to worry about going back to work because there's some sort of financial supporter they can work part time and they're able to build some sort of nest egg over the course of that child's life that could then go on to support them with either you know at, at least some sort of housing afterwards um you know obviously housing being a really big part of that uh, yeah. I'm curious like Hubert what are your thoughts on that yeah uh you know a couple of things and I quickly, you know, I'm getting older than you guys have to write stuff down. <laughs> um, when you mention uh, having to stay home, those parents also do not get the same Canada pension plan because they haven't paid into it. So once they're paid, they get paid into 
Canada Pension Plan as well. So at least when they get a certain age. The other thing that's happened is that over time now, it used to be where people with fairly severe disabilities would pass away long before the parents would. Now they're outliving the parents. And I know stories, I know people that kind of in a, in a very sad way are kind of hoping their child will die before them mm. so that mm-hmm. they know that the child won't have to worry. They don't have to worry about what happens after they're gone because the waiting lists or supported housing in Ontario alone, I believe is 40,000 that are on a waiting list. So unless you are in a crisis situation, which is when your parents die, you will not be placed into a, into a supported housing. As mm. long as the parents are alive, you aren't in a crisis and you will not get a spot. Wow. So, you, so the way it's set up, you know, you're going to die before you get a spot. So, you know, I think with, oh, with a national disability insurance plan, a lot of those things will be taken care of and not just, let's say, long-term chronic disabilities, but it affects all disabilities. Yeah. And it affects, you know, that's with, with our name, Every Canadian Counts. Disability affects everybody. You can't that's get right. around it. So yeah. if, uh, you know, just like what, uh, uh, Brian, what you mentioned, you know, doing your yoga stuff. So it affects you, you know. Um, I think, I don't know if one or three of you all have disabilities, but you're all affected in some way. Mm-hmm. And you know somebody who is. Mm-hmm. Uh, I've, I want to talk to, um, we've, we've talked quite a bit to the building trades. And all people in the building trades have good jobs. A lot of them have good insurance policies, mm-hmm. but their kids don't, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, their grandkids don't. Um, and in fact, the building trades in Ontario passed a resolution supporting our idea. So there's 150,000 members in the Ontario building trades that have supported our plan. Mm-hmm. And we're, we're on the, I'm kind of on a, on a prep, on a preface it right now of really reaching out in the right areas uh, really pushing forward with a lot of things in different regions. Mm. Uh, in Nunavut and the territories, we have uh, really good uh, partner supporters there, uh, BC, yeah. uh, of course, Ontario and Quebec. Um, the, and, and actually last Sunday night at, uh, at uh, six o'clock at night, I was invited to the New Brunswick uh, Coalition for People with Disabilities with their cafe that they have on a Sunday night. And I spoke with them from mm. uh, uh, Actually, that was from uh, New Brunswick, not uh, sorry, New Brunswick, not Nova Scotia. Amazing. Uh, but so we're, there's so much still going on, you yeah. know. And and ironically, when you mentioned the caregiver summit, um, at nine o'clock, I met a good friend of mine who also was in the same uh, work as I was in, uh, worked at the same place in a self-contained classroom. His father had been ill, and he was caregiving for his father, and that whose father just passed away about two weeks ago. So this was our first sort of get together after that. Mm-hmm. So he had been given the you know caregiving duty. Now that probably would not have been covered by our plan because his illness was after after uh, sixty five. So there's a little catch there, and I'll explain it. So if you have a disability when you're born, or you acquire a, bis- a disability that's you know for long term, up to the age of sixty five, you are staying on the program. Right. But if you get a disability after 65, that's this program is not designed for that. Mm. So, you know, there's, there's people can complain that they should put more into place for seniors, but that's a separate issue that, that we're right. not into. Right. And the same thing with, uh, otherwise, we're not here to take over the whole Medicare system, I guess is what I'm yeah, saying. Yeah, yeah. yeah right. Just I, I, yeah, I, I just, I want to, I want to jump in there and just, just kind of, you know, you brought something to mind, which I think, um, I think that this is something that would probably stand out to anyone who's been in a similar, similar, similar situation. But like, you know, for myself as an adult, um, my entire adult life, I have been a, you know, I've been an artist. Uh, I've, I've been a self-employed artist. And uh, one of the, yeah, there's lots of upsides to that, that life. <laughs> and, uh, and there's also a lot of downsides. And one of the downsides is that um, what does not inc- what's not included in that lifestyle, uh, typically, is health, a health insurance plan. Yeah. And uh, as someone who lives with a disability, um, you know, I've, I've kind of just, I've kind of just chugged along, surviving, doing my thing without an insurance plan. And you know, you start to just, you start to become unaware of, of the, the needs that you have and the, um, 
and the inability to to address those needs when you have lived so long without uh, you know an insurance plan. Yeah. Yeah. And just in the last couple of months, my partner, um, uh, you know, she she got a really really great job with with public health, and as a part of that, uh, both her and I have been afforded a a very a very robust insurance plan. And it's only been about a month where I'm now living with this insurance plan as a part of my life. And this past month has been jaw-droppingly shocking with the realization that I am making, which is there are so many aspects of my life that have needed attention and have required deep, deep work that I just did not have the capacity or the finances to be able to afford to do. And now that I am in that position where I have that ability, it is fundamentally changing my, my, my day to day. It is, it is, it, 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 it is increasing my, my quality of life in a way that I didn't even know that I didn't know. Um, and so I, I think that, you know, if there's anybody listening to this, who's in that, who's been through that situation, they know exactly what I'm talking about. And if there's anybody listening, who's in the current position of not having some sort of insurance plan at their, you know, afforded to them, um, that's going to happen if you ever get to that point. And for anybody living with a disability who also is in that position, who does not have, uh, you know, a, a reliable insurance plan and living with a disability. I mean, I cannot begin to describe to you how fucking unbelievably life-changing it is. Um, and this is something that as someone who's in that position now, it's like, it is, it's one of those things where I go, this is neat. This is so necessary. This is such a, a, a deep, deep need in, in the, the structure of our country and our society that if we want to, if we want to go in the right direction, there has to be some sort of implementation here. We have to find a way to be able to afford this to the people who really, really need it, right? To, to that point, um, I just saw uh, a friend of mine, Adam Vancouverton, who's a member of parliament yep. for, for Milton. Um, he, he just posted on Facebook this morning that there is a dental um, yep. plan approved for folks who make less than, uh, households who make less than $90,000 a year. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm, I'm curious, like, would there be some sort of with this this program that that you guys are proposing would there be some sort of like cap like that like a households that make a certain amount don't qualify or 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 something like that yeah i like uh vancouver cuz he's got a good name he starts with van he's, <laughs> he, 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 he's a he's a good rower he is, yeah. <laughs> oh, oh, you bride, you're going to take exception with ki- that. He's a kayaker. Okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Hey, look at uh, yeah. 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 Hell no, yeah, right. I don't row, is what he would say. <laughs> no, I, I have followed him a bit, and uh, and uh, he's a liberal. Uh, I was at the convention in May. Uh, you know, you can shout from the outside, or you could try to make change from the inside. Mm-hmm. Uh, if we're on that, so hold that question for a second, because we're on the political thing now. Um, when like when we were at the convention and talking about the liberal convention, there was six electoral district associations from the liberal party that approved the resolution for this. And there was three automatically things would go to uh, the party platform. We didn't make it, but we were number four. So there's a lot of support politically. There's a lot of people that know about us uh, politically. But you guys didn't know about us, right? Yeah, you no. guys didn't even know this is an option. And the rest yeah. of Canada doesn't know it. So they don't even know it's a possible choice. So politically, we're certainly, um, uh, you know, uh, we've, we've talked to lots of members of parliament. Mike Maurice a couple of times from the Green Party. Uh, Benita Sorella from the uh, uh, NDP. I think very big supporters. I think Carla Qualtra was a hundred percent supporter for our program. She met in 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 Australia with our former uh, executive director and other and Bruce Bonnehatty, the architect of the program in Australia. And at that time, she was just blown away by, "Wow, this is really something." But then, what happened? Uh, like every Canadian council has been around since uh, 2015, and it's got the ball rolling. But then the Canada or the Accessibility Canada Act came in. 
and all the energy kind of went in that direction politically, all the groups, everything was kind of went in that direction. And then the Canada Disability Benefit came along, which has you know been promised now for three and a half years. And now it's finally getting to where, and, and we support the Canada Disability Benefit. We think it's a good idea. So when we were also as an organization uh, involved with the Disability Inclusion Action Plan, which talked about the Canada Disability Benefit. And Carla Qualtra was at those meetings different times. And what she said was, okay, now we got this. So what's the next big thing for disabilities? And I don't know if she was, but I thought she was speaking to us. What's the next big thing for disabilities? To me, is a national disability insurance plan. Mm. That's the next big thing. That will be so all-inclusive that all these separate organizations won't have to be trying to fight for the little piece of the pie. Yeah. Can you explain you know, the difference between the... the benefit and the insurance yeah. program? Like, Yeah, I'd love to. <laughs> yeah. um, Canada Disability Benefit is designed for people with a disability in poverty. So now people, again, have to prove how poor they are. I just got to write something down. Because you asked a question, we haven't got to back around to it. Mm. So they have to prove how poor they are which is already way below the poverty level, at least half or less than the poverty level. So now they're going to get a little bit of money to get some groceries. So now they prove how poor they are. Now they get some money. So what happens if they need a wheelchair to get to the grocery store? What are they going to spend their money on? So there's a difference between disability and, and poverty. You have to always keep those two separate. Automatically, your disability does not get cured. What I'm afraid of with the Canada Disability Benefit is now everybody think, oh, well, now the disabled people are looked after. They won't need anything else. Their disability hasn't been cured. It's still there. Mm. And, it's and like, so yeah, it, there's like a double dis- disability there. There's, there's, yeah. the, there's, there's the physical disability, but then there's the social disability that, that is, that's coming yeah. from the poverty, right? Yeah. yeah. So in answer to the question about how do you qualify for this program, it's not means tested. So again, you don't have to prove how poor you are. If you get in a car accident, your insurance isn't covered enough, you get your leg cut off, you get what you need. You don't mm-hmm. have to prove how poor you are. Why should you have to pay for it if you happen to have some money in the bank? Yeah. So it's non-means okay. tested, gets rid of all that bureaucracy. So means tested means you don't have to prove how poor you are, how much money you make. And it's also not based on specifically necessarily on a disability diagnosis. So you get a functional analysis based on what you need. So you don't have to jump through all these hoops to say that you can't get out of your house because you have anxiety, you know, or whatever disability you might have. Uh, I might get into that later and uh, mention his name as well. Because there are people who the worst nightmare is stepping outside their door, you know, that they are confined. Um, uh, I will mention his name, Mitch Trombley who have done different, uh, he, I was on his podcast, and he can't wait till March to come around when the medically assistance in dying comes around because mm-hmm. he's going to apply as soon as possible because life has just kicked his ass all the way down, you know, till till now that all he's trying to do now is trying to help people who who might, who might he might be able to save because he, he cannot put up with this life any longer mm-hmm. because he didn't get the support like the NDIS would do, the NDIP would do when he needed it. So if somebody has psychological needs and it looks like it's a long-term thing, get the support you need, early intervention, right? Well, at every stage, early intervention is what you need. There's a, there's a lot of people who are outraged that that's even possible for him to choose medical assistance in dying when, you know, the financial support isn't there, or uh, yeah. financial support amongst other supports. Um, so it's interesting to hear like I, I understand the sort of nuance of the situation, and I seem it seems like there's not really any. Well, that uh, was the good that, or obvious answer. That was the that was the conversation that we had. I I can't remember when when that was. It was over a year ago, and you know when the first when the first iteration of made was uh, made legislation, uh, and then it's gone through you know multiple revisions now. Um. And something that, and it was something that we really, that, that in its first iteration, we were very, we were very happy about because it made a lot of sense for, makes a lot of sense for a lot of people. Um, I, 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 I had a a friend of mine 
a friend of mine um a friend of mine passed away just a couple of weeks ago and and used made and towards the end of his life with cancer and he used that as a as a way to to um to go out on his own terms and um and w- we were really kind of turned it was really kind of turned on our heads when it was kind of brought to our attention that the I don't know if it's the latest iteration of the legislation now but that it really kind of opened the door the person that we were speaking with framed it as this like opening of the door to to allow Canada as a country as like a system to to go oh okay this is this is a way in which we don't need to make improvements to help and support people with disabilities that we're give it we're giving an option for them to just not be around instead of putting in the work to give them yeah support They're, so that they don't feel like ending their life is the course of action that they need to take they're being coerced eh? it's, they're calling it eugenics uh because it's the system is set up that they will not survive so what so what is supposed to be a choice is not really a choice anymore it's the right. default you know, they either die on the street or they die by maid and mm. the support. Um, so, you know, and for mental health uh, is sort of, so what, what's happened, how I connect it is that so many people with mental health end up homeless. So now you have disabled people because of mental health, they're applying for maid, you know, so it's a way to get rid of disabled people. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and uh, so, that's how a lot of people in the disability community feel that they don't really have a choice and uh, and anything is better than going back out in the street where they have no home and there's no support. Mm. So. Exactly. And at the same time, you can't blame them for going ahead with it because it is totally. a really shitty situation for them. And so the, the door is open there for them to walk through it. it like yeah. you can't blame them for walking through it. No, no. I mean, I was walking up yeah. to the studio this morning and I walked by a guy and he was... He was, you know, muttering and muttering to himself and yelling and then yelling. And, and I just, I thought to myself like, man, it is minus whatever, minus two or three this morning. This guy is in tattered clothes. He is in a state that is, that he, he, he is, he is unable to, to provide for himself right now things that he needs to be healthy and, and looked after. And nor are there, nor are, I mean, there are supports obviously in the area, but even the supports that are available are are have extreme difficulty making it's not ends enough. meet. Yeah. You know, shelters as we like <laughs> as we go like when you when we start to think about like going into the um going heading into the winter and temperatures dropping, I mean, it 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 is a it is a crisis mode situation as we change into winter in Canada of going, man, there are so many people out here, a vast majority of which are, are experiencing homelessness because of disability and mental illness. And some of these people are going to freeze to death in the next two months. It's happening. It's been happening. It's Mm -hmm. like, it's, uh, it's hard. It's really hard to wrap your head around. Mm -hmm. So, I've got a couple of points. I don't want to, well, I guess maybe I can take up most of the time. You can. <laughs> you can take as much time as you want. <laughs> um, you mentioned a few things. Uh, it's estimated, you know, I've seen uh, reports that when people go into homelessness, there's about 20% of people that have mental health condition when they go into homelessness. But after a year, 50% of the people have a mental condition, mental health issues. So now you got 50% of the people on the streets. And I've also heard that 50% of the people on the streets have a brain injury of some sort. So now you're just, you know, now offered the medically assisted in dying instead of the support they need, what are they going to choose? And in the seventies, they closed down, basically started closing down all the institutions and psychiatric wards and all that kind of stuff. And they thought, okay, this is going to be a lot better. But the money didn't follow. It just kind of, and ever since, it's just been just people have just been thrown back out in the street. Mm. So Finland, Finland has a, uh, a supported housing in London, Ontario, where I am. There's actually they're doing their best to also get rid of homelessness. And there's there's some wonderful agencies at Indwell. I don't mind mentioning their name, who have sort of southwestern Ontario, uh, Hamilton, uh, uh, Kitchener, uh, London, and they're putting in supported housing. And that's what they have in in Finland. 
where four out of five people that go into supported housing, which means there's counselors there, there's, there's referral agencies, there's, there's, there's support for them, not just a roof over their head. Because to throw people into a house, they're just going to, a lot of the house gets destroyed and they're back out in the street. They can't pay the rent. So it has to be supported. So now they have a fixed address where if they qualify for ODSP or whatever they might be on, that they would get uh, an address. They have, they each have like a bachelor apartment. And this one that I, I toured here in London had 72 units. And sometimes people will say, well, that's just back to an institution again. But it isn't. I look at it as a stopgap. It's a hell of a lot better than no tent on the street. And and it's a, and with support, even with medication, if they require medication, they have people there that will give them their daily medication that they need instead of you know abusing it. So you need supported housing. And in Finland, four out of five people that go into supported housing get back into regular society and not come back. So that's what we need, you know? So it's I, all possible. I was, um, I, I'm, I'm reminded of our conversation that we had with um, Minister Carolyn Bennett, Minister for uh, Mental Health and Addiction, um, a few months ago. Sweet and, little flex um, there, too. And uh, thanks. And, and I, was, uh, I was really kind of shocked to learn, just something that I wasn't aware of because I think it happened um, in the 80s, I think she said. It was right around the time I was born. And, um, and that the, the whole mental health sphere of, uh, of, um, of our healthcare system was detached from the was detached from our healthcare system essentially that the whole, everything that had to do with mental health support psycho, uh, psychologists psychiatrists and all this stuff or if for the most part detached from a mental health system um and so and a lot of things went private and then so you have these really inaccessible these great tools that are largely inaccessible to a vast majority of people like psychiatric and psych- psychological support um and counseling and how and it's beyond me how in the in the tatters that our healthcare system is, it seems to be in how this could be reintegrated. But she had said that, that it was, it was a, it was at least a long-term goal for, um, for the liberal party to reintegrate those back into the healthcare system so that yeah. those things, those supports could be more accessible. I mean, albeit on what kind of waiting time, I don't know, but at least not, uh, not, you know, I mean, if you want to go see a count, if you want to go see a counselor or a, a psychologist, I mean, what is it? 180, 200 bucks a session, 175. I mean, like just the inaccessibility of that to like, that's hard. That's hard for, that's a hard pill for me to swallow and I'm doing fine. And so like, yeah. it is, it's, it's such a far reaching, it's such a far reaching problem. It makes it me really like, starts to re- really spin your head around that, that, that cost of it, um, feel it, it feels really frustrating. Like I understand these are professional service providers and they have to charge their money or whatever, but, but like going from someone who was on an insurance plan that covered that. And now as someone who continues to go to therapy, even though I don't have coverage for it, I, it's so worth it to me to spend that money to have that. Mm-hmm. mm-hmm. But at the same time, I'm reminded or or I feel like I wish this was available to everyone for free because I feel like for the people who wanted to use it, it would be a, a massive difference maker. It could be for them. Yeah. It's it's the one who need it the most don't get it, right? Because mm-hmm. <laughs> they don't have the ability to pay. So they just get worse and worse and end up in and out of the hospital. Um uh, if you know Vancouver, I'm telling them to get a hold of me because I want to try to get this. <laughs> uh, but um, see, I'm just jumping back and forth. <laughs> but we do have a letter into the finance committee right now to also do the research as necessary for the government to do the research. We've asked them to put $6 million aside to and to support our proposal so that the government now can start to look into exactly what they did in Australia to look into the feasibility, viability, and reliability of a plan. We can say, well, you know, Australia proved that they needed it. It was viable. So we can do it. Now we have to do our own research. We have to prove it ourselves that it's needed in Canada too. So we do have the letter into the finance committee. We're hoping for good results. Uh, we probably won't get that money, but at least if they put the money aside, then we know that work will start to be done towards a national disability insurance plan. So the first step would be for, for the finance committee to say, yeah, let's look into this. 
That's our like, first step. I feel Ooh. like this conversation, um, similar similarly to how we felt when when we started working with CCCE and, and then attended the conference, is like you hear this word caregiving or you hear this word disability, and 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 I I think that people see those terms within fairly defined and narrow goalposts. And when you even just start to scratch the surface of it in like the 50 minutes that we've been speaking now, that those goalposts move out kilometers and kilometers away from each other. And there is so much within those terms. There are so, there are so many things that need to be considered and which, which as I, as we speak about it, it becomes, you know, more and more blatantly obvious that it is a thing that as a as an entire country as an entire population and like you know we we've we've seen that we can do those things i mean covid was a covid was a crazy experience and in a lot and you know horrible in a lot of ways and then you know really beneficial in a lot of ways where we saw that we could do that we could that we could do something when everybody said we need to do something um so in that way it it was um it was quite inspiring and and as we talk about this and those goalposts of, of what these terms, um, like something like disability means and what it encompasses, it really does open up from, you know, Vancouver Island to, mm. to St. John's Newfoundland. And you go, everybody is, everybody is within these goalposts. Everybody it's like every is, Canadian counts. <laughs> hey, <laughs> hey, how about that? Nice, Brian. Nice. I mean, I, I do, you know, I, I do want to say yeah, we're, we're coming up to time here, but you know, to, to everything that we've been saying here, like, you know, you, you mentioned that prior to the conversation, like we didn't, we didn't know about the work that ECC is up to. Um, and a lot of the listeners, probably this is the first time that they're hearing about this. So, and, and whenever we talk about these types of things, which, which, which really like we've, this is all relatively new for the three of us to be getting into the, the types of conversations that that dive into policy and and the politics and the you know trying to like move the needle forward to make Canada a better place um, great again <laughs> yeah yeah to make Canada great again um, <laughs> but in in terms of this being like you know a new endeavor for us um, I find I still find that when we have conversations like this, a lot of a lot of times my mind sort of goes down this this pathway of thinking okay sure we're having this conversation that's a that's a positive step forward in the right direction but like it doesn't feel like it's enough um and so for the people who are at home listening and they hear this and they and, and you know they're just listening to the conversation maybe they have the the thought or the sense of like right but like what the fuck can i do um what can we do the you know the listeners at home uh, the three of us here like us who who are not a part of this organization and we're on the sidelines and for a lot of t- for a lot of folks that being on the sidelines feels helpless what are some steps that like we can take to try to again move that needle forward even even just the slightest other than yeah. other other than other than wearing fairly cheap but very slick looking red hats that say make Thank you. Um, for, yeah, first off, you know, just having this opportunity, I've been doing a lot of talking and, and uh, you know, to yours, uh, other, uh, I think this is like the fifth or sixth podcast in the last couple of months. So I'm trying to get the word out to different associations. Um, a couple of things I want to do, I do uh, I'll get to that. One of the things that it is in Australia as well as transportable. So if you live in Halifax, you want to move to Victoria, the plan follows you. You want to move mm-hmm. to Nunavut, it follows you. So you don't have to lose all your all your benefits because you change provinces. So that's that's why a good thing it's national. Um, our uh, Canada is basically identical to what Australia was in 2010. I actually I was in Australia in the whole year of 2010 on a work exchange. Mm. So I saw Australia uh, really enjoyed it. Um and I saw their education system. Um the, one of the easiest thing that your followers can do on our website everycanadiancounts.com we have a support button. And of course you can support us by following us on uh, uh, uh as a subscriber to our newsletter. 
but also to sign your name. Add your name to our, we're not calling it a petition, but we have 436 names on there right now. If we can get that up to 10,000, that would be nice. So that's an easy thing. People can just go to our website, click on it, and support the idea, not necessarily us, but I support a national disability insurance program. It's basically what you're doing. We don't even collect your email address. Mm-hmm. Um, Do that. Let's see how many also, uh, sick boy listeners can move the needle on that. So mm, if you're listening to this, yeah. head head there now and sign it. I yeah. already signed it. And we'll we'll put it. We'll put a link in the show notes uh, directly to that that spot. So yeah. so that we'll make it easy for you. Yeah. So everybody that's listening, we we've got two sort of things that we want to have going at the same time. What really put it over the top in Australia? More and more people started to write in stories. We have a link on our website. You can also, if you want to put it in, into our uh, connection, it's just hvanniekirk at everycanadiancounts.com. Write a story and I'll, we'll put it into a book and so that we can then have 100, 200, 1,000 stories that we can then show the government, look, these people are, are pissed. You know, they need something better. So they had they did a whole bunch of stories in Australia, which really, really helped. Those are individual stories with people with disabilities or their caregivers to, to really uh, get in front. The other one is that we're trying to do is get persons with disabilities, and I say persons with disabilities to disable people. I use them both because you can equally offend both that way. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> Good strategy. So, I love it. So, but they can they can formalize either themselves or with one or two or three people, knock on the door of your member of parliament and say, I need more. I need what Australia has. I need a national disability insurance program that I've heard about, and I think we need to do that. Persons with disabilities really have to get to know their member of parliament. And, you know, I'm, I'm going away, actually. I have uh, uh, three grandkids in Belgium, so I'm going to go for three weeks. As soon as I come back, I'm meeting with a, a, a liberal politician. I meet with quite a few, you know, uh, Peter Fragiscados when I get back. And he's a really good listener. But what we need is political champions, some political person like, you know, a Vancouverdom that says he was he heard this thing. And he, I think if we get a politician to say we need a national disability insurance program. So a, a champions is what we're looking for. And a champion that would be, you know, even one of you guys to represent Nova Scotia in that area that or somebody in Nova Scotia to say we will represent every Canadian counts in Nova Scotia. Mm-hmm. So we have different, you know, we have uh, BC. Uh, I think we have New Brunswick now, uh, Nunavut, Ontario, Quebec. Another name to look up is Jonathan Marchand. He's the chair of our Every Canadian Counts. He's the one that fenced himself in in front of the legislative grounds in Quebec until politicians came to talk to him. Then they did a pilot project with him that he could finally, after nine years, get out of a long-term care home. And now he has his own apartment hires his own people, takes a crap when he wants to, gets changed when he needs to. Ooh. He's a quadriplegic, eats when he wants to, gets up late. He has his own life back. Yeah. People that don't want to be in long-term care shouldn't be there. It's cheaper to keep them in their own home. And it's far more, far more ethical. Ooh. So, you know, that's, we can do so much more and just more people need to talk about it. And that's why I enjoy this platform. I know you guys have quite a few followers. If every one of your followers Keeps in mind, in Australia, they did a referendum at, a, at voting time. It would be lovely to have it on a referendum in 2025 when there's voting to say who supports a national disability insurance program. Yes or no. There was 93, I'm sorry, it's either 85 or 90% of the people in Australia voted for it in a referendum. And it was unanimously supported by all the parties. So we need to get to that level of public education, public awareness, that this is actually an option. This could happen. I like to think we'd have that kind of support here too. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I just want to put a point on the uh, on the on the MP and the piece about MPs. I, I think there are no shortage of people that feel disenfranchised by the political system, and and a lot of people that don't use the voice that they have. And I know that it sucks that politics is a very slow moving machine, but it counts. Even mm-hmm. though it might not count tomorrow or next week, it might count next year or the year after that, and it might affect a gigantic number of people for decades to come if you vote and know what you're voting for. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. 
Yeah, they had big uh, public awareness things, like they shut down streets in Australia with this movement once it got started. And it, it, you know, we want NDIS. And it was a loud cry that came out from the people that once they found out, hey, you know what, this could happen, there was a loud cry and we need to get to where people are screaming, stopping traffic, caging themselves in in front of legislative grounds. Yeah. With big trucks. Yeah. Big trucks. (laughs) With With our red red hats and our big trucks. We should go to parliament, guys. Lots lots of media. And get get yourself elected, you know? There you go. One last last recommendation for you. What if we changed every Canadian counts to all lives matter? Oh, wow. Brian. Holy shit, And then to our trucks and our red hats. Oh, we're going to cut that. Yeah, going to have to cut that big old bleep on that there. That's how you get deplatformed. Platform real quick, uh, Brian. Everybody, truth the first truth social uh, joiner. Yeah, yep, uh, Brian. As soon as drop Brian, and his views are not necessarily reflective of our views. Absolutely, <laughs> and not necessarily. Absolutely, just not. Um, <laughs> Hubert, uh, you're you've, you're you're an absolute delight to talk to, and Thank you. Uh, you know it's 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 beautiful to see. You know, right at the top, you said that you're 48 uh, and and decided to go to teachers college. Uh, I think, you know, outside of all the the wonderful things that you taught us in this conversation, uh, the one thing that I don't think you intended to teach us, but it is beautiful to see that you you really can teach an old dog new tricks. And, uh, and, and it's, we're, we're glad we're glad like, that, that there's old dogs like you out there uh, trying to trying to create such such important change. So mm-hmm. thank you from the bottom of our hearts, taking time at your schedule to sit down and chat with us today. This really uh, did mean a lot. And um, yeah, we're, we're rooting for every Canadian counts for sure. Thank you. If you, uh, you know, want to put that in writing and send it to me, that would be even better. <laughs> but, uh, but, uh, no, no, seriously, from our perspective, I, I really, you know, on behalf of us, uh, thank you very much for allowing this platform and, uh, you know, welcome me back anytime. And uh, I'd be glad to continue the conversation. Thank you very much. Thank you. That is it for this week's edition of Routine Checkup. Thank you so much for tuning in, folks. It means the world to us. And if you'd like to continue listening to the podcast, you can do that right here on Mondays, Wednesdays, and Fridays. And of course, if you want to support the podcast further, you can leave us a rating and review on Apple Podcasts, or you can simply rate the podcast on your Spotify mobile app. And uh, even Better than that, why don't you tell someone that you know, tell someone that you love, tell someone that you don't know, that you listen to Sick Boy Podcast and recommend it to them because we always love those extra ears. The podcast is produced and hosted by myself, Jeremy Saunders, Brian Stever, and Taylor McGilvery. The podcast is managed by Jeffrey Lonis at Talent Bureau. The theme music for today's episode comes from Rich O'Coin. Thanks again, folks. Hope you enjoyed it, and we'll be back next week. That's it for now. My name is Jeremy, and this is Sick Boy. For more CBC Podcasts, go to cbc.ca slash podcasts.